Father, thanks for today. Thanks for bringing us out safely to your house to study your word. I pray that you would grant us insight and understanding now in this time together in Christ's name. Amen. Um, let's take a look at angels. Um, I think uh, if there's anything that's fascinated um, modern man, a lot of times is angels. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, um, misinformation out there I think on angels um, I had a chance to visit the Louvre a, a few years back um, in Paris and uh, it's interesting when you look at the paintings you just walk down these galleries and they've got these huge galleries hundreds of feet long and just painting after painting after painting on the wall and uh, a lot of them have angels in it if you see any of the religious art almost all religious art has somewhere you've got a fat little cherub there you've got an angel or something um, in the paintings and I think a lot of our understanding of angels is born out of what we've seen on the, uh, in the art, a lot of the Christian art that we see out there. Um, and so what we want to do is we want to say, well, what does the Bible say about angels? Um, they're, you, they're seen throughout the scripture. Um, last week we talked about their origin. They were created by God. And they were a special creation by God. We said they were created somewhere during creation week. We don't know what time during creation week. We know that prior to creation week there was nothing. And after creation week, God had created everything that was created. So somewhere in there they were created, probably towards the beginning, we don't know. Um, but uh, we also talked about the fact that God created them perfect. All the angels were created initially perfect. Um, there was no fallen beings there. Um, God did create them with a will, though, with personality, so Satan was able to decide to fall. And we're going to talk about his fall later um, in the class, on, in the course, where um, that came from. Um, but they are created with a will. They were created to serve God. They are created innumerable. There's a lot of them. We don't know how many, but billions probably. And um, they are God's servants. And so what we want to do is we want to look at the holy angels and what they do and what they're up to. When you look at angels throughout the scripture, you see some various names and titles given to these beings. Um, and I'd like people to look up some of these verses as we go along. This will just solidify some of this in the scripture for you. So if we can have some people looking up verses as um, I go from slide to slide, it would be helpful. Um, ministers, they're called ministering spirits, ministers, and that signifies their religious and spiritual service to God. Um, somebody look up, yeah, Psalm 103, 20 through 21. About 104.4. Yeah. Yep. And that's, by the way, quoted in Hebrews chapter 1 as well. So my Bible says he made, he made wind to his messenger. Mm-hmm. Flames of fire. Yep. The angels are God's ministers. What do they do? Whatever God tells them to do. Now, it's interesting. Uh, what, what attitude do you think they have when they're asked to do this stuff? They just do it, right? There's a joyful obedience on their part. That's interesting. You know, the, this earth and the fallen angels are the only things in the universe that rebel against God. Um, when you go to heaven, nobody up there is uh, questioning what God wants them to do or what God says. No one's questioning that. Now, the holy angels are questioning that. They're not saying, look, you know, I've been doing this for the last thousand years. Why don't you get this other angel to do it instead of me today? I want to take a day off. None of them are saying that. They are eagerly eagerly waiting to do God's bidding. Um, they were created to do whatever it is he wanted them to do in the course of his creation. Um, and they are ministering spirits. Um, this is even quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. They minister, and, and, and many theologians and Bible scholars say they also minister to us. Now, we don't know that. Um, one of the things that we need to um, be careful of is not to think that somehow we have you know, a whole cadre of angels around us all of the time. But on the other hand, angels are ministering to us. How do you know that? How do you know angels minister to believers? Where do you find that? Well, Hebrews says they minister. Where else? Well, the Old Testament shows stories of that. Like what? Like Elijah and his servant Gehazi. Yeah, Gehazi. Gehazi. When he said the enemies were coming after them, 
send on that house. And I should pray that gave the guy these eyes would be open so that when he walked outside, he looked and the whole hills were filled with angels and chariots of fire. And I, you know, remember when uh, Elijah was running from Jezebel? He was ministered to by angels. Christ was ministered to by angels, right? At the end of 40 days? Kings. Yeah. Yeah, kings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But throughout the scripture, we see angelic beings ministering to believers. I mean, that's part of their activity. And uh, we don't see that usually. I think it's going to be interesting when I get to heaven and I find out just how busy sometimes the angels were on my behalf. And I thank God for that. All right. But understand something. There's something really important to understand. Angels are not to do my bidding. Whose bidding are they to do? God's bidding. So don't let some uh, TV evangelist tell you that you have the right to order your angels around. That's not that's not the way it works. Uh, Gloria Copeland said that if you need some money, tell your guardian angel to go get you some money kind of stuff. Um, that's silliness, all right? You don't order your angels around. They minister to you on God's behalf. They're under God's command. You don't order angels around at all. Yes? Well, here's the one in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Yes, and it's, quoting, it's going back to Psalm 104.4. Talk about us who are heirs of salvation. There are ministering spirits that God uses on our behalf to protect us, to to keep us safe. I, you know, I don't know all of the different ways in which they minister, but they're certainly there and they're certainly active. And they're under God's control. They're under God's command. Okay, not under my command. They're under God's command. Um, sometimes they are called hosts. This is one of the fam- uh, probably one of the favorite uh, titles that Isaiah uses in Isaiah. Um, Talk about the Lord of Hosts. Again, again, it's called Lord of Hosts. And the idea there is He's Lord of the heavenly armies, the armies of heaven. And we see the armies of heaven several times. For example, when we, uh, Joshua. There's a, there's a case where Joshua saw them, where Elijah saw them, where you have the ho- heavenly hosts that are there, ready to do God's bidding. Let's look at um, these verses here. Somebody look up Genesis and the rest of them here. Could have a Bible drill. Whoever gets there first, you know, that'd be sort of fun. Yeah, somebody. Genesis 32, verse 92. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, "This is the camp of God." So he named that place Mahanaim. Mahanaim. Mm-hmm. Close enough. <laughs> Close enough. How about Psalm 89.8? O Lord God Almighty, who is like you, you are mighty, O Lord, and the faithfulness surrounds you. How about 1 Samuel? David said to the Philistine, You come against me with the sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. The God of the armies of Israel, the armies of heaven. Um, yeah. Uh, how about Revelation 19? Remember that? When Christ comes again second time, who comes with him? Well, we do, but who else comes along? The angels of heaven. And in fact, what are the, what's the job of the angels of heaven? What do they do? When Christ comes again, what's one of their jobs? What's one of their tasks? What do they separate? The wheat from the chaff. The believers from the unbelievers. You see that in uh, Matthew chapter 13, where there's a great separation. And in the parable of the tares, Christ said, you know, I don't, you don't know what a tear is. I mean, I don't know who a tear is and who isn't in the church. And uh, if I'm not careful, I'll root out some wheat and I'll leave some tares behind. But God knows exactly who are his. And who does the separation? It's the angels. The angels know who the tares are and who the wheat is. And then again, if you just read the book of Isaiah, I didn't even put it up there. I could put Isaiah 1 through 66. Um, if you read the whole book of Isaiah, again, again, God is called the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven. Um, an angelic army innumerable. And again, how many angels did it take to kill 186,000 Assyrians? One. Um, you don't mess with them. They're big. They're fast. They're powerful. Um, sometimes they talk about, talk about the chariots. The, in fact, I think this is, um, if I remember right, 
I can't remember the exact uh, quote in the Old Testament, but at one point it talks about the chariots of heaven. Um, how about 2 Kings 6, 16 through 17? Somebody look that up and uh, Psalm 68:17. And then while I'm at it, somebody else can look up Daniel 4. You got Daniel 4? Okay, so we got that one. Somebody got 2 Kings? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Horses and chariots of fire all around. Now, we didn't see we don't see that with our natural eyes. But you know, this is the situation where I think this is the, if I remember right, this is when the um Assyri- the Syrians came down and surrounded poor old Elijah with his servant Gehaz- Gehazi. And of course you go outside and you got a whole army of all these people around your house, you're sort of a little bit worried about things and Elijah said, What is there to worry? Open your eyes. Open his eyes, Lord, and he saw the armies of heaven all around. Yeah. Um, greater. The full, here's the. If, if there's one thing that, that I would like you to understand as we go through angels here, we don't need to live in fear of what's going on out there. We don't need to be afraid of Satan. We don't need to be afraid of what he's up to. We don't need to be afraid of demons. We don't need to be afraid of all that stuff. Because greater is he that is with us than he that is with the world. We don't have to fear that. We don't have to live in fear of what Satan might do to us. Because God has him on a leash. And we're going to see that in Job chapter 1. Satan can't do anything he wants to do. He has to get God's permission to come after us. He takes care of us. And... We don't have to be fearful. If there's anything that I want you to try and understand as we read through these passages is God has things under control. Nothing is going to happen to us. And Satan is not going to you know, take advantage of you in any way that God does not allow him to do. And even then God puts a limit on him. And he can only do so much. And again and again and again the Bible says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We have nothing to fear. We do not need to live in fear of what Satan is up to. Yeah. Uh, personally, like over the last week, I've dealt well over the last like, over the last two weeks, I've dealt with uh, fear issues because Satan has tried to address my life, and really, like the spirit of fear has tried to overwhelm me in areas having to do with my past, with my future, with change. But uh, having to do with my past, I had incidents where people were trying to kill me. And there were some things that came before me uh, that tried to bring that feeling back and that, that, that fear to the point where I was shaking. And so it's like in my life, that's something that really has to be addressed. And to have faith, no matter what I see around me, is what I'm trying to say is important for me and what I'm learning uh, to, to rely on him and to, to not let Satan and the spirit of fear overwhelm me regardless of what I see mm-hmm. because I'm so used to being influenced by what I see and now I'm having to challenge myself to look at things from a faith perspective. Yeah, you need to make a change from Gehazi to Elijah there. You, know, you look around, you see everything melting down and falling apart around you, and it's easy, like Gehazi, to get so upset and bothered and worried and frightened. And, and, then, and then you just need to say, well, I don't see it, but I know that God is in charge of this thing. I know that God is there. And I either trust Him or I don't. All right? And you need to trust God because He is sovereign. That's the big thing. God is sovereign. And nothing is going to touch you. Nothing is going to get near to you. That God does not allow. And even if he allows it, it's for his eternal purposes. And God is still in charge of that. So you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to live in fear. Somebody have Psalm 68 here? I have it. The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai to the sanctuary. All right, now put yourself back into the shoes of someone who lives in the Old Testament. What is the fastest thing that they've seen? A chariot, right? 
This is the imagery that you have here. It's not like there are literal physical chariots in heaven or anything like that. It's an imagery that is borne out to show their swiftness, their, their, their ability to react swiftly. And that's what chariots did. In the, in the ancient battles, a, a horseman and a chariot was able to act swiftly on the battlefield. They are fast. They are there. They can be there at a, at a moment's notice. They're all around us. All right, so God, don't, don't worry that Satan's going to be able to sneak up on you and get you before an angel knows what's going on or before God knows what's going on. There's nothing to worry there, all right? They're also called watchers. The idea of watchers is they, their duties as supervisors, they, they observe and they watch what's going on in the world, all right? Um, Daniel 4, what's that? Yeah, oh, I'm sorry, she had it in front. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked and there before me was a messenger, a holy one coming down from the heaven. Verse 17, the decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. Now I think some versions have watchers in there. The King James, I think, has watchers. The idea of watchers is the angelic beings, the holy angels, are watching what is going on in the world. They're aware of it. They're not um, disinterested in what's going on. And rather, they are watching. And they're not only watching what's going on, they're watching how God is dealing with men, how God is in charge of things. All right. And in this particular case, they were watching in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, who was... An arrogant person, right? In fact, remember Daniel chapter 4, the whole point of Daniel 4 is uh, God is humbling Nebuchadnezzar. And I think, you know, I, I believe this. I think I'm going to find Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. I really do. I mean, God went to a whole lot of trouble with this guy. And uh, at the end, he says, you know, I figured it out that God is the one who rules over heaven and earth. And no one can sway his uh, authority. He is in charge. And I think I'm one running things. And I'm really not. And that's one of the things, you know, that I think as Christians, especially in the world today, that we can have as a testimony to other people. You look around, you see Achmenajab running amok, and you see all these things going on. And, you know, it's easy for us to get a little bit bothered and why I wonder what's going to happen. And, folks, they're small potatoes, all right? Isaiah chapter 40 says the nations are like dust on a scale. What do you do with dust on a scale? Do you wipe the dust off the scale when you're measuring something? Not really, because it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. The dust is no... It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. God is, yeah, it's like they're, they're dust on a scale. They're like a drop in a bucket. They're nothing compared to God's power. We don't need to live in fear of what's going on in the world. We don't need to look around... You know, financial meltdown. And all the Christians are all, their Christians are all bothered about their 401ks and their IRAs. What's there to worry about? What if the Lord comes back tomorrow? Do you care? You know, we got, and that's the one thing I'm seeing as I work through this angels and that. Get your focus off what's going on around you. If you look around what's going on around you, you can really get afraid of what's, what's, what's happening in the world. But if you get your eyes on God, on His sovereignty, the fact that He is the Lord of hosts, he is the Lord of armies. Nothing's going to touch you that He doesn't allow. You can live in peace because you know that God is taking care of you all the way around. And He's not going to let you down. Has God ever let down any of His followers? No. Why do you think you're the first one? They're called sons of mighty, of the mighty. Signifies their awesome strength and power. Somebody look up these verses here. And then sons of God, we talked about that a little bit yesterday or last week. Um, Psalm 29.1, somebody has that one? Yeah. And then somebody look up 89.6. And again, angels are splattered all the way through the Bible, so you can see them everywhere. Psalm 29.1. Mighty ones. Okay. Yeah, go on. Yeah, twenty nine one. How about eighty nine six? For who is the sky above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? And then some um, translation have mighty ones in there. How do you know twenty nine one is the name? 
Read it again. Um, I think the reference there is to, to angels. Mighty ones. I'd have to go back. You have to go back and look at the Hebrew there, but I think that's referring to angels there. Um, throughout, in fact, really throughout the Psalms, David, you know, brings the uh, angels in on the worship. In fact, when you look at heaven, what are the angels doing in heaven for the most part? Worshiping God. I mean, there's there's a lot of worship there. Yeah. So, how do you know the word mighty refers to an angel when we go back to the Hebrew? I don't have the answer for that. I'll have to go look it up for you. That's a good question, though. But yeah. All right. Well, we'll go back and look at that then. Um, sons of God talks about their origin. What's the, what do we mean by origin? Where they came from, right? They're called the sons of God. And again, throughout the Old Testament, we see again, 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 where angels are referred to as sons of God, having their origin from God. Now, we are are we sons of God in a sense? In what sense are we sons of God? We're adopted. All right, that, That's the great picture of Romans chapter 8. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. How did we become the sons of God? We were adopted. The angels are different because they were directly, all angels were directly created by God. And Adam was a son of God in what sense? He was directly created by God. So this is talking about the direct creation component. All right, they were directly created. And again, we talk about angels do not procreate. There's no hint in the scriptures that there are more little baby angels being born. Um, God created all of them initially and in, in, in the initial state. Um, look up, we already looked at Genesis 6. How about Job 1 6? Somebody have that one? I think some have sons of God. Um, and in, in Job 2, there are sons of God used as well. And again, it's referring to the angelic beings. And one of the interesting things, we'll come back to Job quite a bit, is uh, all the angels appear before God. It's interesting, isn't that? I mean, not only do you have the holy angels there, but who else shows up? Satan, Satan shows up. And you say, well, I didn't understand. I thought Satan was kicked out of heaven. Well, was he? Was, angel, was Satan kicked out of heaven? Well, that's a yes and a no. Yes in the sense that... Yeah. Yes in the sense that heaven is not his permanent abode. No in the sense that he still has access to heaven. How do you know that? Well, what's going to happen in Revelation 12? Remember Revelation 12? Michael and his angels fought against Satan and his angels and they were cast out of heaven. Now, when does that happen? Well, that's future yet. What happens during the Great Tribulation? Satan and his demons are permanently cast out of heaven. And all of heaven rejoices when they're cast out. But how do you know Satan still has access to heaven? Well, Job 1 and 2 shows that he has access to heaven. And in fact, listen, when he was cast out of heaven in Revelation 12, why did heaven rejoice? Remember what it says? Heaven rejoiced because the accuser of the brethren is cast out. Well, how can he be an accuser of the brethren in heaven if he was already out of heaven? Follow that? He could, but, but Job 1 seems to indicate very clearly that he is in heaven. I mean, he has access to heaven. It's not that he is there on a permanent basis, but he does have access to heaven. And other thing, he is accountable to who? God. He doesn't do anything he wants to do. Now, God has given him a great amount of freedom, but he, doesn't have, he does not have perfect freedom. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, and, and again, this is a debate that that's beyond you know what we can do here. But many Bible theologians, and I, and I think they're correct, said that that when the initial rebellion occurred, there was sort of an eternal fixation at that point, sort of like what's going to happen to us. For example, let's let's take this a, a little bit further. When you get to heaven, when you're glorified and you're in heaven, are you going to be able to sin? 
I love that. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to foul it up. That's a wonderful thing, right? Because if, you know, if we got to heaven and God says, well, you made it, great. Um, there's one rule. <laughs> okay, we're done. You know, we're, Heaven will empty itself out in no time at all, right? Because, because there's going to come a point when I won't be able to sin. That's going to be a wonderful thing. I can't sin. I'm going to be forever fixed in my holiness. And those who are unbelievers are going to be forever fixed in their unholiness. And I think the same thing happened with angels. When the angels initially rebelled, they were fixed in their decision. They, it was an irreversible decision. They were forever doomed. And those angels that did not fall were forever elect. They're not continually falling as we're going along. And the reason for that is no indication in Scripture that they are. There's nothing in there that says that angels continue to fall and rebel. And stop and think about it. If you're a holy angel and you know that the eternal destiny of the fallen angels is the lake of fire, are you going to fall? I don't think so. All right. Right. The point is, there's no evidence in Scripture that angels are continually falling. There's no point of that. There's no, there's no evidence that that is going on. And the Bible does talk about elect angels. And I think that has to do with the fact that they are forever fixed in their holiness. They will not continue to fall. Because if they could fall now, what would happen in eternity future? They could still fall if they have the ability to continue to fall. I don't think they do. That's the imagery that seems to come out of Job, that God is sovereign. Now, does God know what's going on? Of course he does. I mean, he's sovereign. He, knows. he doesn't need Satan to tell him what he, Satan is up to, right? But that is a picture for us to see some of the dynamics. We're given a little glimpse of the dynamic there. And the one glimpse we're given tells us that Satan is under God's control. We're not given the complete dynamics. We're not told exactly what he's up to and how it works. But we get the idea that he's the accuser of the brother. We're going to talk about that. He accuses the brother and he is there. He is under God's sovereign control. Um, we get that picture. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's yeah. He he does have it, evidently right now he does have limited access to heaven. Um, he doesn't have a permanent dwelling there. That's not his base of operations. Um, but he does have access. There's coming a day when that access will be taken away, and that is in Revelation chapter 12, where he is cast out. But right now he has access because he is. That's just you know we see that in Job. Um, holy ones, they're called holy ones. Um, look up Daniel 8.13, somebody. In Daniel 8.13. Yeah. I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror? So as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. Here you have a conversation between two angels in heaven, and their conversation is given in order to give Daniel some information about the vision that he saw. And they're called a holy one. What's the idea of a holy one? Set apart. Holy ones are totally set apart to God. They're sort they're they're separated to God, to his purposes. And, and holy means separation. In fact, the Hebrew root word for holy, kadosh, means to cut, to separate two things. So the angels are separated to God in their holiness. What version has holy one? Um, I think the King James. No, no, what is it? NIV has, NIV has, NIV has holy one there? Yeah. Saint. saint is a holy one. Right. The, the root word for saint. Huh? Yeah, a saint doesn't, you're right, a saint doesn't have to be an angel, but in this context there are two beings talking in heaven back and forth. 
All right, and the context would lead you to believe that they're angels because also in Zechariah, angels are used to interpret um, visions a lot of times. In fact, remember in Zechariah 1 through 4, um, Zechariah has a, an angel basically guide him along in his different visions that he's seeing, interpreting for him. I'm yeah. Trying to be oh, no, that's fine. I'm just trying to see the reason. No, that's fine. That's fine. I love it. I love it when people ask a question because that means you're thinking. And I, okay, whatever you say. I, I like that. You don't want to whatever you say. So you, you want to be able to think this through. And uh, again, you know, I don't read Hebrew, but the, the in fact, even in the New Testament, uh, the root word for a saint is a holy one. We are holy. We are set apart. Okay. And I would say that the context here and the fact that these these two holy ones are having a conversation to help Daniel interpret the dream would imply that they are not people, but rather they would be angels. All right. Um, so that's a stars. I'm not going to go pick up a little bit of speed here. Stars um, refer to their brightness, their number. Can you number the stars? They're called stars. In fact, what was Lucifer? He was morning star. He was the brightest star of all of the stars. Um, Revelation 12, 3-4, you don't need to look this up, but I can quote it. It says, when, when the dragon fell, what did he drag with his tail? A third of the stars of heaven. All right, Referring to their brightness, to their, to their glory. And, and by the way, angels, even the fallen angels, are glorious beings. You know, we think of a, when we think of demons, we think of something all twisted and malformed and gross looking and all that. Uh, look, they're, 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 there's no indication in Scripture that they're ugly. In fact, you know, their ministers appear as, as bright, wonderful creatures. I mean, they're not ugly. The right. The right. It's not the outside. It's Satan falling. Yes, because the dragon drags a third of his, his third of the stars with him, and and Revelation 12. If we were to go and just exegetically go through that entire passage, what it's doing is it's given the the 20,000 foot perspective of spiritual warfare through the centuries, from the time of Satan's rebellion all the way to the end. It's a 20,000 foot view of that. It's an, sort of an overview of it going all the way back. Because it talks about, you know, when the Messiah was born, what was the dragon there to do? To devour him and men and he was born. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's an image of the entire picture of spiritual warfare throughout the ages. All right. So that's, that's what it is. But at the end there, you get the, you, what it does, it not only shows it the ages, but then it focuses in, it starts to focus and narrow in on what's happening in the tribulation, what's happening right at the end. And right at the end, Satan and his demons are cast out of heaven permanently. They're cast down to the earth, it says. So they, they lose their access to heaven. And of course, all heaven rejoices because Satan is not there anymore. Um, he's not there to accuse the brethren anymore. And there's great rejoicing over that. Um, how do angels appear? When angels, in their natural state, in their natural form, all right, um, they are glorious beings. All right, they are bright. They are shining, and they have a, they have a way to veil that shining, right? Because if they didn't, they would blind people. So there, there's a glory that they have. Um, let's look up these um, passages here. Someone look up Luke 24.4 and someone else look up Revelation 10.1. Yeah. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. Alright, so two men gleam like lightning, like bright light. Mm-hmm. How about Revelation 10? And I saw that a mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery... Okay, so a bright, shining angel coming down. Um, also in 15.6 and 18.1, you see this idea of brightness and shining and glory. And why is that? Well, they're, 
abode is heaven. They are bright, beautiful beings. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The idea here is that what was Christ able to do when he was on earth? Yeah, he was able to mask his glory. But what happened at the Mount of Transfiguration? Lifted just a little bit. All right. Now, did he totally lift it? How do you know that? How do you know he didn't totally lift it? Yeah, because the, the other three walked down from the mountain, right? I mean, in fact, if Christ had totally lifted and they saw the unveiled glory of God, they would have been dead, all right? They would have been dead. Yeah. So there, there's a veiling of the glory of heaven. But these are bright, shining beings. You are now running on reserved battery power. I've got a battery that's about ready to die on me. Technical difficulties. You know, but, but being prepared as I am, I have a spare for just such an emergency. Yeah. The point is, when you look at the scripture, angels are seen as bright and shining. Let's have somebody look up the other one there. Mark 16, 5 and Genesis 18, 2. Okay, so they saw a young man sitting there. Um, how about Genesis 18? So he must took his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran and he took joy to meet them and bowed himself to his So when Abraham saw these men there, I can get rid of that because I got power now. When Abraham saw these three men at his tent door, were they shining, brilliant, bright? No. Now, you get a hint. They sort of had an idea who they were, right? Because of the way he addressed them. And, of course, he knew later on that one of them was who? God. Or actually, it's Jesus Christ, a Christophany, the second member of the Trinity who was there. All right? But Abraham knew who they were, but they weren't brilliant, bright, shining. In fact, what did they do? They ate dinner with them. All right. So can they take on physical form and eat? And sure. Now, how does that work? I don't know how that works. God created them. Are you going to eat in heaven in your glorified form? Sure. You're going to eat of the fruit of the the fruit of the trees. You know, you're going to enjoy it. You know, it's not going to be an eternal fast in heaven. You know, it's going to be for enjoyment. I don't know how that all works out, but but they're able to eat and they had food and they ate dinner with uh, Abraham there yeah what will be fed physical physical well physically we'll have a body in heaven right we'll be able to eat now you know the bible doesn't say we have to eat to live or anything like that we'll probably eat to enjoy it we're not told all of that stuff you know we got to fill in the blanks a little bit with our own imaginations oh absolutely yeah our entire eternity is going to be one great adventure of knowing God. And since he's infinite, how long is that going to take? Forever. Forever. Yeah. But when they appear in human form, they appear as normal men. That's, that's the point. Whenever you see an angel appearing, we talked about this last week, when they appear, they appear as a man. They don't appear as a woman. They appear as a man. All right? In male form. And in fact, what kind of male form do they appear in? Danny DeVito or Arnold? Arnold. They're good looking, alright? Some of you probably don't get the twins, you know, remember the twins? Yeah, the show of the twins. Uh, they, they appear as glorious, you know, good looking men, because the men of Sodom were really drawn to them um, when they showed up there in Sodom. Um, let's look at their organization a little bit. How, how are angels organized? Um, and, and where are the different classifications of angels that we see? Number one, let's ask this question. Are angels organized? Yes. yes, there's an implied organization to angels. And we know that because in several passages of the New Testament, 
Paul talks about principalities, powers, rulers, all right, those kind of things. So there, we know there's an organization to the demonic angelic beings. And even within angels, there appears to be an organization. There are some angels that do certain things and other angels do different things. Now, do we know all of the particulars of how they're organized? No, we don't know that. The Bible doesn't say that, but it does say they are organized. All right. When we look at the scripture, there's a couple that come up at the top called what we call archangels. What's, what does that imply, an archangel? Yeah, they're, they're, they're sort of like the, the head, the leader, if you want, Will. The, the number one angel or whatever. The generals, if you want to think about it. All right, and we, we run into a couple of these in the New Testament and in, in the Scripture. One of them is Michael. Michael is called an archangel. His name means who is like God. Who is like God, Michael. Um, he's one of the most prominent archangels. In fact, how many angels are named in the Bible? Three. Who are they? And Lucifer. Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. All right, those are the three names we have. We don't have the names of the other ones. Now, do angels have names? Most likely they do, but we don't know what they are. We're just introduced to three of them, Michael, Gabriel, and, of course, Lucifer, son of the morning. What's Michael do? What has he done? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to get that. That's second point there. He is. He's when 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 it's talking about the like, like for example in Revelation 12, who fights against Satan and his demons in heaven? Michael and let's just say Michael and his angels, which implies what? He's the leader of them. Uh, you know, he is the leader of those now. All angels are God's angels, right? But in this case, it's talk about Michael and his angels. The angels that fight with Michael are the ones that cast Satan out of heaven. All right? And um, so, so he is the leader. We can imply very clearly from an understanding of Scripture, from reading all the passages on Michael, he appears to be a leader. He appears to be the leader of God's armies, if you want to think about it in those terms. Um, what did he do? When, when did he show up? What's his activities? Well, in Daniel 10.13, he assisted an angelic messenger to Daniel. Now, I want to talk for just a couple minutes about this. We'll talk more about it when we get to the um, fallen angels and demons. If you remember in Daniel chapter 12, uh, or chapter 10, the angel said, I, uh, I was going to come and give you the interpretation of the vision, but I was held up by the prince of Persia for three weeks. 21 days, I think it was. And uh, I had to have Michael come and help me. Now, out of that little snippet there, we've got vast amounts of literature being produced um, that talk about how, you know, in heaven you've got warring between Satan and demons and, you know, sort of like a, a back and forth, sort of like World War II, you know, where you got one of them wins a battle and the other one's a battle and they keep fighting back and forth and things. Um, I'm not sure you can go that far in this. Because what do you know about God? God is absolutely sovereign. So God can burst through any opposition that Satan or any of the demons have. Right? But we also want, don't want to forget the fact that there is a struggle going on. Right? How do you know there's a struggle going on? Well, here is a struggle. But what happens in Revelation 12? There's a battle. There's a struggle. Now, how does that work out? What's going? I don't know. I don't know how that works out. But there is a struggle going on between the holy angels and the and the fallen angels. Um, this is just a kind of curious side question, just based on what I see up there. Um, we talked about how, in, you know, it says in Daniel that uh, the angel that was telling you Daniel was waylaid by the night and they fought it out or whatever for three weeks. Can angels be hurt or killed? Or? No. Okay, but we talked about one winning over another and say the battle, how many... We don't know. No, we don't know. I mean, there's no physical fighting. You know, we you know we think of you know angels with swords hacking other angels to pieces. That's not the way it's working. I don't. We don't know what it is. There's some kind of struggle, whether it's a you know a physical wrestling. I don't know if it's that. We don't know. We're not told. We just know that there's opposition. That's what we need to go with. There's some kind of opposition, and, and this angel that was going to come to Daniel had 
was waylaid by something else called the Prince of Persia. Now, what do you know about Persia at that time? Well, who was in charge of the world at the time? Not Persia. It was Babylon, right? But evidently, there was some power behind the Persian Empire. And we get a hint that, that Satan appears, or the, the demonic forces appear, to have an organization behind world powers that is there. How else do you know that? Well, in Ezekiel 28, all right, Satan is referred to as the king of Tyre. And, and in Isaiah chapter 14, he is seen as behind which king? Babylon. All right. Now, you've you got to be careful. You can't go so too far on that, you know, to the Frank Peretti, where Frank Peretti is at. But let's not, let's not dismiss it. There is an organization to Satan. There is an organized structure. He is behind world powers. He, what was behind Hitler? I mean, there's some demonic forces behind Hitler. Now, God allowed that. Um, but there are demonic forces behind him. Yeah. And powers. Yeah. There is an organization of Satan's forces. We don't know what that is, so when we fight our spiritual battle, and we're going to get to that at the end of the course here, how do you fight it? Well, you put on the armor of God and you stand firm. Let God worry about what Satan is up to and his machinations. You stand firm. There are some things that we are given to do and we need to do those. But in the back of our heads, we need to realize there is a struggle out there. There is a struggle out there. There is a demonic struggle in the world. Yeah, Sam. Because the spiritual is really far more powerful than the physical, I think that the 21-day holdup from getting to Daniel, wherein the battle was taking place, was not about who beat up who. It was about the same thing that any of us who engage in fasting and prayer, uh, effectual fervent, uh, without ceasing, uh, where at some point of enough spiritual faithfulness and consistency, we get the breakthrough. I, I see the 21-day thing as eventually the breakthrough because the strength, the spiritual wall, albeit intangible, albeit invisible, is beside the point. It's spiritual force that took that long, mm -hmm. which is the same thing you and I probably have felt, I know I have, you know, in terms of fasting for something for a long time and you're hungry and you think it's not going to happen and, and you keep at it and eventually, woof, you get to break yeah. through that wall of restriction. Yeah. That is the kind of thing mm -hmm. I think that... Yeah, and what the Bible gives us a picture of is that there is an invisible battle going on around us that we are unaware of. It's there. But we don't know all the ins and outs and particulars of it because we don't operate on that plane. We operate on this plane here, the physical plane, on what we see. And so when we fight on that, God has given us certain things that we as believers are to do. Certain things that we are to, certain ways in which we fight that battle, recognizing there's something bigger going on. That's the point of Job, isn't it? And the whole point of the book of Job, to some extent, is Job thinks he just sees things on his little you know, his level, and until he is taken out of that and sees the grand picture of what's going on, he has no concept. And he is misled thinking, well, what did I do wrong? Did I sin? Maybe it was something I did. And, you know, his four friends came along and said, come on, Job, what'd you do? Fess up. And the whole point of that book is Job didn't do anything. There's a bigger battle going on around us. And God has allowed that struggle to exist to advance his purposes. Why? I don't know why. Could God have told the prince of Persia to stand down? Sure he could have. He didn't. Why didn't he? I don't know. Maybe it was to, like you said, increase Daniel's um, faith. Because he didn't get the answer right away. There's, there's a struggle going on. And sometimes God allows that, right? How, how do you grow? Would you grow spiritually if everything you pray for happened immediately? No. No. You, you grow spiritually... When there's a struggle, when you have to fight, when, when there's a battle, that's when you grow.
That's when you learn to trust in God. That's when you learn to have faith and know that God has a plan and a purpose beyond your little view. All right. Maturity, all of that stuff can only happen through warfare. Yeah, and, and, and here's the other thing. When you go through that warfare, you appreciate God's power and God's sustaining grace and God's, God's um, protection for you far better all right, than if you didn't go through that struggle. Far better. Yeah, they saw some of those things, you know. But yet, yeah, I think I think what you see here, and, and you know, we're going to see this as we work our way through the course here. We keep coming back to this concept. There's something going on around us that we don't see. We get a little glimpse once in a while. There's a little bit of a like a hole that we can peek through and see something going on. We see a little peep here in, in Daniel chapter 10. We oh, there's something going on behind the scenes here. Um, we see little glimpses here and there, but we don't see the whole battle. And I think the reason we don't see the whole battle is because we would just probably fall apart if we seen what was going on the real big picture of what was going on out there. And God has protected us, from, protected us from that. And God continues to protect us individually. And where we run into satanic opposition, God allows that for our own growth, our own maturity. Think of Peter, right? Remember Peter? Peter says, uh, I won't deny you. The rest of them will run away, I'll be there. What did Christ tell him? But what did he say before that? Satan has desired... To have you, to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith fell not. And when you're converted, strengthen the brother. What did God allow the devil to do to Peter? Sift him like wheat. God also said, Satan wanted to sift you like wheat. I'm going to let him, but he's not going to ultimately win. Understand the difference there? Was Satan allowed to sift Job? But did Satan ultimately win? No. And you know what? Satan might sift you, but will he win? No. No. He won't win. He won't ultimately win. Because God, again, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Um, what else, we've got to get back to this, what else does Michael do? Well, he will stand with Israel during the Great Tribulation. It talks about Michael will stand up and defend Israel. What is Satan going to want to do to the people of God? Wipe them out. Not only does he want to destroy Israel, but he goes after all of those who believe on Jesus. Who are those? Christians. He's after the believers. Satan is after the us. And Michael, in the, in the Great Tribulation especially, Michael's going to stand up and protect Israel. How's that going to work? I, I don't know how it's all going to work out. Um, Daniel 12.1 says at that time Michael will stand up and will def- defend Israel during that great time of tribulation. Um, he will defend them. Um, that's the best we can go on. And how, how many, how much of a, what percentage of Israel makes it all the way through? Remember? One third, right? One third will be brought through this as, as the fire. Refined as in the fire, um, Zechariah 13 and 14. One third of Israel. Now, two thirds will be cut off, but one third will come through. Alright? So he will protect them. Um, he disputed with Satan over the body of Moses. This is very fascinating. When Moses died, what did Satan want? He wanted the body of Moses. Why? Well, we don't know why. Um, it doesn't tell us necessarily why, but you know that would have been one one awful good relic, wouldn't it, to worship? You know, if you had the bones of Moses laying around. Um, We don't know that. And we're not told why Satan wanted the body of Moses. We're not told that. We just know that that's what happened. And how did Michael respond to him? What was his response? The Lord rebuke you. Now, we're going to talk about this in spiritual warfare, but let's under- we need to understand something as believers that we're not being told from TV today. 
You don't have any personal authority and power over Satan and over his demons. God does, not you. And the best you can do is say the Lord rebuke you. Because it's not... Just because I'm a Christian, I don't have power over the devil. And I don't have power to bind him and to tell him what to do and where to go and what to do here and there. And I don't have that authority. God has authority. And how do you know that? Because Peter and Jude both pick up this, this thing, or especially Jude, picks up this disputing over the body of Moses. And Michael could have, told, you know, he could have told Satan off, couldn't he? But why didn't he? Well, he was not only an authority, but what is Satan still? Even at this point, what is Satan still? He's a prince of this world, but he's still an angel. He's still a being created by God. He still has a residual stamp of the Creator on him. And even, Mo, even Michael did not bring a railing accusation against the Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Think about that. Even Michael, the greatest angel of all, who had every right to tell Satan just exactly what he felt, did not. He still showed Satan respect because Satan was a created being. We'll, we'll talk about that more. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't have a problem with, you know, your statement that we shouldn't be talking about binding Satan, but. The people who believe that, love that scripture about whatsoever shall be bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. Mm-hmm. So, how do you... We will explain that when we get to the branding gotcha. part. Gotcha. Okay? And if I forget to tell you or talk about it, you remind me. Okay. Alright? But you've got to understand that passage in context. It has nothing to do with binding the devil. Okay? okay? That has nothing to do with that. Okay. We'll talk about that. But the point here is, if you read Jude very carefully... Even Michael did not bring a railing accusation against Satan, but still responded to him with respect, because Satan is a created being. And Satan still has the residual stamp of the Creator on him. That's God's business to do, take care of that. Michael did not. Michael still gave him respect. Because after all, what was Satan originally? He was the number one angel originally, right? He was the number one. Um, he fights against Satan during the tribulation and casts him out of heaven. We talked about that. Revelation 12:7. Michael and his angels cast out Satan from heaven. And Satan no longer has unrestricted access to heaven. So Michael is one of the great archangels. He's probably the, was created as the second in command who became the first in command when Satan fell. We have another angel called Gabriel, the mighty one of God. He appears, yeah. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know that he was created as the worship leader of heaven. Lucifer was. Um, but he fell from that. Um, Gabriel, the mighty one of God. Um, what is Gabriel usually doing? Well, when Gabriel shows up, he's usually bringing messages from God to people. He's the, sort of like the messenger angel. In fact, that's what angel means. The, the root word in Hebrew, angel, means messenger. A messenger from God. Um, for example, in Daniel 8.16, he explains the vision of the ram and goat to Daniel. Gabriel shows up and explains that to Daniel, what the vision means. Um, he explains the 70 weeks prophecy to Daniel in Daniel 9.21. Right. Could God have used any angel? Sure, he could have used, but Gabriel appears to be the angel that that brings um, message, you know, revelation to man or explains things to us. He's God's messenger. Um, in Luke 1.19, he announces the birth of John the Baptist, remember, to Zacharias and to Elizabeth. He tells them about John the Baptist being born. He announces the birth of Christ in Luke 1.26. He appears to Joseph in Matthew 1.20 and assures him of Mary's purity. He's a busy guy. He's a busy angel um, bringing the message of God directly to men. And he also uh, warns Joseph of Herod's plot. Remember, he appears to 
Joseph in a dream and tells him about Herod and what he's up to. Um, he tells Joseph of the death of Herod. He announces the birth of Christ to the shepherds and strengthens Christ in the garden. Um, he appears to be, you know, one of the, ma- the, the main angel that, that interfaces with humans, humanity in the bringing, um, bringing of God's revelation, of God's information. Messenger. Messenger. He's the messenger angel. All right? Yeah. We told you, um, we told what angel uh, tells the magi to go in different ways. No, I don't think we, I don't remember that. Um, God appears to them in a dream. I don't know if it's an angel. I don't remember that. Um, but when Gabriel does show up, he is a messenger. He is, he is bringing information to man. And usually, a lot, he was really busy around the time of the incarnation. You know, when he's given a message about John the Baptist, about Christ, about what was going on there. So you have archangels. Um, you have cherubim. This is where Sammy finally straightens me out. Uh, she's always arguing about seraphim and cherubim. Cherubim. Um, they appear to be guardians of the holiness of God. Now, who are, they, are they protecting God from us or us from God? Us from God. They are, they are around the throne of God, right? They, they, you see them around the throne of God. And what are they doing around the throne of God? Holy, holy, holy. And they prevent anybody from getting, or anyone from getting too close to what? Because glory, because that would be a bad thing. Get too close to God's glory. They appear to be the, the protectors of God's holiness. Protecting us from God, not God from us. God doesn't need protection from us, but we certainly need protection from God, if you want to think about it in those terms. Um, their description, um, in fact, if you read Ezekiel, I won't do that. Um, I would suggest you go home and read Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 through 26. But uh, it's, it's interesting how they appear. Now, perhaps we should read that a little bit here to finish up. Yeah. Poor old Ezekiel. You've got to understand Ezekiel here. He just doesn't, he's running out of words to describe these things. I mean, the poor old guy is trying to, trying to explain something that's almost unexplainable, at least in his, his mindset. Um, in Ezekiel, you have God showing up. And it says, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. Now, Danikin says this is a spaceship. Don't go there. All right. So this is a vision of the throne of God. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. This is four living creatures. All right. And um, they had a human likeness. What's the idea of a human likeness? Yeah, arms, legs, you know, sort of looking like a human. All right, but each one of them had four faces and four wings. Wow, that'd be really weird. Four faces, and uh, their legs were straight. The soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Again, he's running. This is this is really an interesting-looking creature. By the way, we'll see these when we get to heaven. Um, and under their wings, on their on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. So they apparently were around the throne of God, their wings touching, and they had four faces. Why, did they, why is that? I don't know why God created them that way. It's just that's the way God created them. By the way, we have living creatures in Revelation chapter 4, right? The four living creatures. What do they have? Four different faces like this, right? Yeah. And in fact, um, if you look at the description, they're almost the same. But when you're looking at them, they're around God's... They're around the throne of God. So as you look at them, you see four different faces. Each one has four faces, but the human face is pointed this way, and then that one's the human face is that way, the human face 
get what's going on there? Yeah, but you see all four faces on these four living creatures. Um, it says that for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance is like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. They were ablaze with energy and, and lightning and, and electrical energy and glowing. And, you know, poor old Ezekiel, he, just, he didn't know how to quite express this. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of the flash of lightning. So what are, they, what are these creatures doing? They're guarding God's throne. They're guarding the glory of God. And why would they be bright? Because God's bright, right? It's not that they're glowing with their own brightness necessarily, although possibly that's certainly true. But they're in the presence of God. And whenever you see God on the throne, what do you see? A blazing, brilliant, blinding light that, that you can't even approach. That no man can approach, the Bible says. God dwells in light which no man can approach. He's unapproachable light, blazing and brilliant and blinding. And he's protecting, those, the creatures are protecting us from God. Now, is God everywhere? Sure he is. So why don't we see his blazing brilliance here? Because it's veiled here, right? It's not that he's not here, it's just that we don't see it here. Where do we see it? In heaven, around the throne. And we see the four living creatures, the cherubim surrounding the throne of God. Now next week, we'll pick up and show where they appear throughout Scripture. For example, there were cherubim at the head of the Garden of Eden, right? And over the mercy seat, what did you have? Cherubim. So whenever you see cherubim, you see them as being guardians of the glory and the holiness of God. Protecting us from God. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's cherubim. Mm-hmm. And the I am in Hebrew is the S. It's, it's the plural. Yeah, it's not him. It's cherubim. The I am is the plural in, in Hebrew. All right. Okay, well, yeah. I don't think your dad's watching over you. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's your dad. Yeah. I don't I think it's your dad. I don't think it's your dad. Could be demonic forces, but it's not your dad. So all right, well let's close in prayer here. We gotta get out for the next class. Father, thank you for this day that you've granted to us that that we've been able to study your word and we thank you, Father, that the angels are there watching over us, that they protect us. And uh, in a way, Father, it's a blessing that we don't know what's going on around us totally because if we did, we'd probably be scared out of our minds as to what is really out there. But we do know, Father, we can trust you, that you're in charge, that you are sovereign God, that nothing's going to happen, that you don't allow to happen. And I pray that we would just trust you, knowing that uh, you have our interest at heart and that you are protecting us all the way around us. And we thank you for this time that we've been able to study in Christ's name. Amen.